2: My mission is simple. To make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer! Welcome to Mad Money! Welcome to Kramer Arc. Other people want to make friends was trying to make you some money. My job is just to just entertain, but also to educate and to teach it and put it in context. So call me at one 800 743 cnbc or tweet me at Jim Kramer. After two terrific months in a row, Marsh got off to another great start today, now gaining 110 points, s and advancing 0.65%, NASDAQ climbing 0.83%, including some of our old favorites rally. This is the kind of move that naturally makes you wonder if the market can maintain its momentum. It's got a lot of people worrying that we might be cruising for a bruise. So what does the future hold for the market? And eh, Why don't we just get right to it? at least to the immediate future. You know I don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that the most significant event that happens next week has all, we have to leap all the way to here. This is what's going to control. That's right. So that's where we're going to start our game plan. The one thing that might stay in the way of a continued rally, other than the possibility of a blown trade deal with China, is the non-farm payroll report on Friday. These employment numbers are always the most important piece of data around. And this one's more important than usual. Why? This market's been rocketing higher because the Federal Reserve has become a sleeping dog. And we need this to let sleeping dogs lie, don't we? The averages got annihilated in the fourth quarter when Fed Chief Jay Powell barked at us about the need for a series of rate hikes. And he nodded off in January. And since then, the market's made back nearly all of its losses. However, a really red-hot employment number may wake the sleeping dog. Because there's so many jackals handling the Fed chairman to start tightening again. I hope Powell won't be swayed. He finally seems to have a very good handle on things. But if he goes back to his old mindset, it could be, well, let's just say deadly, given the run we've had. That's why I expect there to be some profit-taking next week going into the labor report. Okay? There we go. Uh, the fear may become palpable because there are so many inflation hawks in the pundit undetocracy, so-called experts who don't care that inflation is actually mild, which means there's no reason for the Fed to raise interest rates. They want higher rates to fight inflation, even when inflation is imaginary. You need to be ready for them to issue their Jeremiahs, though, which may cause at least a hiccup in the averages, as people believe that maybe Jay will be listening after that report. 840 is going to be very... 831 be a lot of trepidation. So be aware that pearl awaits, especially because the economy has definitely picked up, which gives the Fed more of a reason to tighten. Right now, I'm predicting we're going to get one rate hike this year. I think that's really all we can handle. I hope Jay Powell agrees with me. I'll certainly make sure that well he'll be thinking about it. Now, let's get back to our regularly scheduled earnings program, starting with Salesforce.com. They report Monday night. We've owned Salesforce for my trust for ages. It's been a horse. But that's what worries me. We had three Cloud Kings report just last night, Workday, Splunk, and VMware. They all deliver fabulous beats, raised numbers, fantastic conference calls. Their stocks all pop big in the after-hours trading and at the opening bell. But then all three stocks reversed, with Workday and Splunk actually closing in the red. I was shocked. Workday ended the session down 4%. 4%. Only VMware held on to its gains, and even then it closed down five bucks from its highs. What makes VMware so special? I think it's their partnership with Amazon Web Services, AWS, that helps companies onboard to the cloud. That's what they do. Something we heard about last night from Andy Jassy, who's the head of Amazon Web Services. Wow, that was a dynamite interview, or what? I mean, even if I say so myself without any humility whatsoever. So will Salesforce.com be VMware, or will it be Workday? I fear it might be more like the latter. The stock's just run so much that many investors will be eager to ring the register. I bet you start, if you had to look at the stock, it'll go up like this, okay? And then, so be very, very careful, okay? Uh, we aren't going to trade this out in the trust. It, it, that would be just wrong. It's an investment. But others may not be as sanguine. So if you don't already own Salesforce, can I suggest that you wait to see what happens after the quarter? You might get a better price. Tuesday's a retail fest with results from Target, Kohl's, both before the opening. I think Target CEO Brian Cornell will tell a fantastic story and the stock could be a winner. Kohl's is more complicated. This one tends to explode higher as soon as it reports and then roll over right into it during the conference call. We own Kohl's for the charitable trust and we're inclined to buy more if the stock gets hit. Given how much the stock has gone and run this week into the quarter because there's other strong retailers, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a pullback even as I think that management is sensational. After the close, we hear from Ross stores and Urban Outfitters. Ross has been busting out of late. I bet that continues to hit the court. Urban's become a value play, though. And at this moment, this market has little love for value. Wednesday, we get results from one of my absolute favorite companies, Dollar Tree. I'm wondering if their numbers will be hurt by the helium shortage. I am not kidding. I always buy my holiday balloons at Dollar Tree, and so do millions of other customers. If it happens, I hope they can asterisk the helium shortage issue effectively. Dollar Tree uh, will also have to tell us how the turnaround of family dollar stores are going. Remember, they bought that chain, and it turned out to be not as good as we thought. CEO Gary Philbin told us a terrific story about the family dollar business the last time he came on the show. And since then, the stock has just been a horse. I stuck more of the same. Then there's Thor Industries, THO, the RV uh, maker that's lost more than half of its value in the last two years, brought down by weaker sales and higher raw costs. At a certain point, Thor will get its costs under control, and the sales will turn. But I don't know if it'll be this quarter. Camping World is exposed to basically the same end markets, and it just caught a nasty downgrade today. Still, sometimes stocks get too cheap to ignore, and that's what I'm going to be focused on with Thor Reports. Also on Wednesday, get this, this is really important. It's very little, kind of different from what I usually talk about here. Wednesday, Estee Lauder. Holds an analyst meeting. I say prepare yourself for the brilliance, the brilliance of this meeting. Because the CEO, Fabrizio Freida, is one of the smartest, savvest executives I've ever had the privilege to meet. I hope he talks about his reverse mentoring philosophy. Get this this is what I'm talking about. He has his younger associates, they get to be the bosses, the bosses of the older. The, the normal, regular bosses in order to help their elders understand how the modern world actually works. Think about it. Isn't that clever? I mean, this is a cosmetics company that often targets younger consumers. So don't you want the younger employees to be the boss of the older employees at some point? That's what he does. It's just so refreshing. A lot of companies should think about doing that. On Thursday morning, we'll be listening to what Kroger has to say, especially since the Wall Street Journal is talking about how Amazon's swallowing out a new grocery model. Last time, Kroger reported the stock didn't react well. Be careful. On the other hand, you don't need to be careful of Burlington stores, where I always threaten David Faber. I'm going to take him to my favorite one in Brooklyn. Yes, you're going to get another sharply better than expected quarter, I believe. And by the way, I think you're going to get a better than expected quarter in Costco, too. I don't know if you caught Warren Buffett talking about the dominance of the Kirkland brand, Costco's private label business. Good call. It's the only stuff I use. We also have an analyst meeting from Etsy. That's the reigning online champion in New York City now that Amazon has decided not to challenge Etsy's fabulous Brooklyn-based website with a Queens-based alternative. I love Etsy. But I don't know if the stock can continue to roar. Uh, I wouldn't bet against it, though. Bottom line, we've been up for an awful long time, haven't we? We're probably due for a break, especially with the unemployment number on the horizon. Don't get me wrong. I still like this market. You know that. In most circumstances, i tell you to buy the dips. But you know what? We've been up for 11 straight weeks without a dip. So maybe it's time to proceed with some caution. Don in Massachusetts. Don. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Don, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great.
3: Thanks. Jim, uh, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on symbol NTNX, Newtonx, Newtonx. You yeah. know,
2: you know, it was really interesting because in the conference call, if you're reading the first, let's say the first quarter of the conference call, everything sounds great, and then you get a little bit of an outlook, and the outlook was bad. Okay. The outlook was weak, and the day when VMware, its principal, its principal competitor, had a spectacular outlook. So you had lots of money coming out of Nutanix because of that weaker forecast and a lot of money going into VMware because of the fantastic forecast. Uh, and that's what happened. It, it kind of took my breath away how bad the forecast was, and it also didn't seem to make as much sense to me. I'd like to speak to management. Yeah, that's how a stock loses that much money in one day. Let's go to Randy in Michigan. Randy! Captain Kramer, how are you? I'm admiral now because of some things I've done recently. (laughs) Congratulations on that promotion. Well, I I, I got the eBay thing right. and A lot of people are saying I should be an admiral. Go ahead. All right. A warm shout-out from Grand Rapids, Michigan, home of Grand Valley State Lakers. My question is, I'm a shareholder of GE. Sobbing in the background, I've received a spinoff
3: of Wab Tech Shares, symbol W-A-B. Should I buy... More of this position, should I hold it or should I sell it and plow
2: it into Cisco? Yes, you heard me. I ring the register now. Congratulations. And I think Cisco in this pullback is an excellent idea. May I go to Dennis in Tennessee, please? Dennis. Yes, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you? Great. My stock is Planet Fitness. And I was wondering if this might fit into an anti-recessionary portion of my portfolio, of course, which is a well-diversified portfolio. Thanks for what you do for us, buddy. I'll be listening. Thank you, partner. I have to tell you, I had a little debate with my daughter today, my youngest. I said, how many of your friends go to Planet Fitness? This thing is smoking hot. Ten million people. I got the pizza night. It has just been humble. It's just that I don't know a soul who goes to Planet Fitness. And I got to tell you, you know what that said to me? It said to me, well, who are those 10 million people? Could that CEO come back on? I love that guy. And I think Planet Fitness is a buy. Sorry, Em. I disagree with you. Hey, but she had the Etsy, right? You know, she doesn't. And she's into sustainable clothing. All right, we're due for a break, but I believe dips should be bought. On Mad Money today, it's a company up nearly 2,000 percent. Yeah, I'm not making that up over the past year. Clearly a 40% move this week alone. How's your index fund do? But is there still more money to be made in this stock? Don't make a move. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Tandem Diabetes. You are going to love this story. Then March started on a high note. But are you afraid to get back in the game after that tough end we saw in 2018? I'm helping you get over the fourth quarter blues by pointing out some of the biggest gainers since the bottom. Plus, oil's been in a house of pain. But could pipelines be your path to profit? (laughs) Why don't you listen in and stay with Kramer. last night i went over a whole list of stocks that i wish i'd recommended more strongly over the past year obvious winners that i should have been much more aggressive about pushing to you but none of those winners comes close to the gains and no longer that small medical device company called tandem diabetes tndm which has rocketed from three dollars and change a year ago to 69 dollars today you heard me That is an astounding gain of 1,900% over just 12 months. How's your index fund do versus that? This company makes high-quality, high-tech insulin pumps with related software and apps that help people with diabetes predict their blood sugar levels. I've been asked about Tandem Stock twice during the lightning round during this period. Both times I shied away from endorsing it, the stock had run so much and I was very wary of chasing it. But Tandem just keeps delivering good numbers for shareholders. They got a key authorization from the FDA last month and then reported a blowout quarter earlier this week with a big revenue beat and a surprise profit. Even better, management gave you a much stronger than expected forecast for 2019. While I'm hesitant to recommend a stock that's so much, I told you that. This is a very intriguing story that deserves a much deeper look. So let's go straight to the source with Kim Blickenstaff. He's the longtime CEO of Tandem Diabetes. By the way, he was stepping down as CEO to become executive chairman at a remarkable tenure. Mr. Blickenstaff, congratulations and welcome to Bad Money.
3: Thank you very well, much, Jim. You're in I the flesh. We're in the flesh for you.
2: Yeah, well, no, because this kind of return is the kind of return I always tell people you can get if you own stocks. That's right. It's It's something sometimes my friend David Faber said to me, Jim, maybe we're dinosaurs by picking individual stocks. You pick Tandem Diabetes, you can retire. So congratulations, (laughs) but can you tell people what you do and how you're really the only game in town?
3: Yeah, we make the T-Slim X2 insulin pump, and so it's the only touchscreen insulin pump in the marketplace. And we can remotely update that software just like the iPhone. So it's very much sort of the Apple model. And we're now down to 2 two competitors in the marketplace, ourselves, and Medtronic, so it's a duopoly. When we entered, there were actually four or five players, so now it's a duopoly. So, so let me just say, so there was a
2: and j player that is, that, that is discontinued.
3: Animus, Animus.
2: They're, that Medtronic actually, I think by their own admission, would tell you that they have some issues, right, that help, that make it so that you've got that market right now.
3: Yes, we're doing very well against Medtronic, right. gaining those patients, there's some independent data to say we're actually doing better than Medtronic. Right.
2: And you also are not a competitor to a, mm-hmm. a friend of our show, Dexcom, but you work with them.
3: We're a partner. They enable us to have automated insulin delivery, and we're very much converging in the marketplace as we brought out our basal IQ uh, algorithm this year with the G6, which uh, eliminates finger sticks completely right. for the first time in history. And our basal IQ actually performs as well as the Medtronic 670G, which is supposedly a more sophisticated algorithm. So all that data has come not come out in the marketplace.
2: We're big fans of Abbott Labs and the Libre, which is so a very I? inexpensive one. Any, <laughs> what's your relationship with them?
3: There isn't one. You know, oh, come <laughs> on, Miles <laughs> White's fabulous. I I know, I've known him for a long time, but they don't have CGM yet. They're they're doing this intermittent flash, which is a a great replacement for uh, finger sticks. So you're getting more compliance, people testing more frequently. And it's probably a blend of a Type 2 and a Type 1 product. So I view it as sort of like uh, training wheels for getting on to a fully automated system.
2: Is there a way that you can integrate it with uh, the
3: Apple Watch, not just the phone? Sure, we can display on anything at, really? in, the, in the future. Because to me,
2: the greatest thing would be the watch. I mean, look, I love the phone. I was going to say, listen, I could bring this out and measure, yeah. or I could go like this. It would be yeah. less awkward. People would know what I'm doing. Because you want, look, these are all, I mean, we had someone talk about epilepsy the other day. No one, everyone likes to be discreet about any illness, even one True. that is as Always. common, unfortunately, as this. 16,000 pumps and there's 1.5 million people who might be right, using that's it. That's
3: right. That's right.
2: But that's, Let's 16,000 see. now,
3: maybe 1.5 million people? No, 1. 1.6 million people, type 1s, right. use pumps. Right, but I'm saying that this is your market. Oh, it is, yes. And you, oh. can, you can expand it because only about 27 to 30% of type 1s are using pumps because they've been so difficult, um, they're very cumbersome to use, and like you said, they're embarrassing. So we try to go the Apple route. Consumer, make it not embarrassing. Make it very simple because it's an intuitive interface. And ultimately, ultimately where we want to go is our sport product, which is much smaller, no screen. And the automated algorithm is running your system, so you really don't have to do anything. You just watch your control on a watch or a phone.
2: Well, I'm fascinated by this because, first of all, Kim, I've got to tell you, the stock, you've, you've kind of come out of nowhere, but that's not really true. You, you've been in this business for ages. How did this just happen? How did this set of circumstances happen that you, this little company, can, can dominate the fast, unfortunately, fastest growing illness in America?
3: I went to church a lot. <laughs> no, whatever does it, you know. I, we all to do it. We, we had a series of misfortunes in two thousand and sixteen. If you remember, United Health uh, terminated coverage of us. I know. And then the six hundred and seventy G got approval a year and a half early. Right. And so we traditionally have a sales ramp like this. We had budgeted 40 to 50% sales growth in 16. We did this because the market was frozen. And Medtronic could uh, market the data. The clinical data was very compelling, right. but the user experience was not well known. So during the course of 2017, as that became known, uh, we got our uh, integration with the G5 and we used our tandem That's device right. updater for the first time. That was an industry first. We saw Animus exit, and then we saw our numbers return to that. And point. then the FDA alt designation? All these designations have uh, uh, sped our in- innovation. Right, We were able to finance our way out of this by, you know, we had great fourth quarter results. Right. We did an offering. Uh, we had great second and third quarter results. We did another offering, paid down our debt, and we're a debt-free company. Right. And we all did it in eight months. And then we created a market valuation that... I would never predict it. I, my prediction was we would be uh, twelve dollars a share last December. That was my prediction. Well, You know,
2: I've been pretty... Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, you were certainly I conservative. It was <laughs> it was bold. I was bold. You know, I would love to see you merge with Apple, but that's not up to you, right?
3: That, no, it's not up to me. You know, but you got to just say, for the last two years, we've been a, you know we've been essentially dead, and so it'll be interesting to see how our success and penetration of the market is going to bring different ideas uh, in the world of wireless, remote uh, healthcare, which well, is where we're going. You're,
2: you're a straight shooter. I want to congratulate you. Thank for you very much. Making so you. your investors more money than any other company I can recall that's been on the show in years and years. That's Kim Blickenstaff. He's the executive chairman. Today's his first day of being executive Thanks. chairman of, of Tandem Diabetes. Thank you to our viewers for bringing this to our attention. TNDM. Stick and with Kramer.
0: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block it strikes when i'm at work that's why i choose canva magic Write. it works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to ai
1: common side effects include increased productivity compliments from co-workers feelings of satisfaction
0: now i can say bye-bye to writer's block
1: ask your boss if canva magic Write is right for you at canva.com designed for work yeah.
2: Not long ago we went through a rapid onset bear market it was unbelievably vicious. In less than three months, the S&P 500 lost more than 20% of its value. That kind of thing is traumatic. It sticks with you. Believe me, I get it. But since the market bottomed on the day after Christmas, the averages have come roaring back. With the S&P now up more than 19% from its lows, NASDAQ gaining nearly 23%. In all honesty, we're witnessing one of the most incredible bull markets I have seen in ages. Yet so many investors remain terrified Assuming this market is a house of cards that could easily topple, sending us right back into the dark days of December. You know what? I think that's a huge mistake. The Federal Reserve caused the bear market with its boneheaded policies. They know nothing! And the Fed got us out of it by repudiating those policies. So let me help you get over the trauma of the fourth quarter meltdown by pointing out some of the biggest gainers since the bottom, and what could happen to them. As of last night's close, 487 of the stocks the S&P 500 are in positive territory since their fourth quarter lows. One more is flat. Only a dozen are down. Of the 500 S- stocks in the S&P, you know, that, you know, if you have the S&P 500, by the way, there are 500 stocks in the S&P 417 are up double digits. Isn't that incredible? 250 of them are up more than 20%. 91 are up a staggering 30%. 28 are up more than 40%. And a select group of 11 stocks are up more than 50%. All of this in just over... Months. If that's not enough to grab your attention, I don't know what is. If you're going over all the top gainers, I'm going to walk you through some of my favorites. And I left out a lot of stocks, but there's a lot of different reasons why I did that. I want to pick the ones that I think could still make some money, that roared. And maybe they shouldn't have been down in the first place. The best performer in the S&P since the bottom is Cody, C-O-T-Y. It's a cosmetics maker where the stock is up more than 80% from its lows. 80. Most of that move came after Cody reported a fantastic quarter early last month, which sent the stock surging 32% in a single session. Textbook short squeeze, by the way. Followed by another 12.5% gain a few days later after J.B. Holdings announced it was buying an additional 20% stake in the company, giving them a controlling interest. Cody never should have been down so much in the first place. And I think it's crazy that so many short sellers bet against it when J.B. Holdings already owned 40% of the business and that company's acquisitive. You never short something that could be taken over. Next, going through the list of the biggest winners, I like Xilinx XLNX number five. This terrific semiconductor stock barely even got dinged in the fourth quarter because this business is so strong. Think 5G, OK? Uh, it, it, and ever since the December lows, this thing's up 58%. Gained 58%. Xilin has long been seen as a China play because it has a lot of exposure to the People's Republic. But the company reported some amazing results in January, and the stock really caught fire. What's driving this one? OK, it is a key chip supplier for all sorts of communications, including 5G. That's that next-generation wireless technology that's about to take the world by storm. I am a huge fan of the stock, uh, though it's a little high risk, and I would like it even more in a pullback. But I did rename Bob Marley, our mutt we got from a kill uh, shelter. We named him him Xilinx. I'm not kidding. After this performance and its app, because Xilinx is unstoppable, which is why we sent him to obedience school. We pick up Xilinx tomorrow morning from the school. Maybe you should pick up Xilinx on Monday. What else is up? How about Chipotle? This has gained 57% since the December lows. We've talked about this one before, how it takes roughly 18 months for a fast food chain to recover from a health scare. And now that Chipotle's crossed that threshold, its same store sales are coming back and they're coming back with a vengeance. Plus, new CEO Brian Nickel has been doing a great job. And the last quarter was unbelievably good. We had some Chipotle for lunch today. It was awesome. I had a burrito. feel a little bloated. Sorry. Then there's General Electric. It's the seventh best performer since the bottom. It's up a staggering 56%. We spent a lot of time talking about the resurgence of GE under the leadership of the new CEO Larry Culp, who's practically a miracle worker. While GE still has plenty of problems, no doubt about it, especially its ailing power division and its enormous long-term care liabilities, the company's finally being honest with itself about what it needs to do to turn around. Plus, the sale of the biopharma business for $21 billion or this week will take some of the balance sheet fears off the table. Iron Man a fan. Now, its chief nemesis analyst Steve Tusa from J.P. Morgan doubled down on his negative GE call and a six-dollar price target this week ahead of a March 5th sit-down that he's doing with CEO Culp. Maybe you want to uh, maybe you want to wait for his sell reiteration after that chat, or GE's tough March 7th teaching about burgeoning long-term care liabilities. There's also a March 14th company conference call to learn more. I think the stock's got major upside, but let's see how it reacts to these three events and maybe wait around if you haven't bought any yet. Who else? Okay, we got net. Netflix up 53% from its December lows. We know this is a real boom and bust stock, but honestly, a huge chunk of this gain came on no real news as the stock ramped at the beginning of the year. I think it really should never have been down so much in the first place. But then the Netflix sold off after a very good quarter with a light guidance in January. I like this company here. Any company that can raise prices with no real resistance from its customers has something good going for it. Now, obviously, you would like it more in weakness, but I think Netflix is okay to buy. Next up, the 12th best performing in the S&P since the lows is Boeing, up 49%. Makes sense. Boeing's one of those industrials that sold off way too hard because of its perceived exposure to China. One in four of their planes goes to the Chinese market. But as I've been telling you for ages, there's so much demand for aircraft that China needs Boeing more than Boeing needs China especially since they're taking uh, market share from Airbus, that's the only real competitor, all over the world. You know, it just notched two huge wins from the Vietnamese and the Brits, and people just yawn. Many more non-PRC orders are coming. Then there's Best Buy, BBY, which has rallied 42.7% since the bottom. For years, Best Buy's been making a remarkable turnaround. After being written off as little more than a showroom for Amazon, CEO, Uh, Hubert Hubert Jolie, that's J-O-L-Y, breathed new life into the chain by offering customers more value-added services like the Geek Squad, home theater setup, and also by making Best Buy one of the few third-party retailers carrying Apple products. But when investors started freaking out about a slowdown in the fourth quarter, and everyone was worried about it, Particularly because of iPhone sales. Best Buy stock got obliterated. Turns out the bears were dead wrong as a host of other appliances, including those needed to play Fortnite, took up the slack from the weak cell phone sales. Presumably, some of them were Apple. Earlier this week, Best Buy delivered a spectacular quarter, and the stock were from 60 to $68. It's still down 16 bucks from its highs. I'd be a buyer. Next up, eBay. Wow, made the top 25. gain from the lows. eBay's been trying to turn itself around for a while now, but the stock started running after an activist hedge fund. Very good one. Elliott Management decided to get involved. Now, look, a a a month ago I begged Elliott and eBay's leadership to work together to unlock value, and last night we learned that that's exactly what they're doing. I think eBay's stock has got a lot more room to run. It's dirt cheap. I'd buy it right here. Finally, there's Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, the 26th best performer in the S&P since the bottom, with a stock that's up 40%. Norwegian stands out to me because it's the biggest winner among the Cruise Lines, a group that's been left for dead back in September. Even though business was good, investors feared that lots of new cruise ships would soon flood the market, leading to weaker pricing for the whole industry. Now, Norwegian put those concerns to rest when it reported a strong quarter last week, robust guidance. They're confident about the future. Uh, you know, look, their biggest brands, 80% of their capacity for 2019, has already been booked. For 2020, they booked a third of it, and that's at higher prices. I like this. Plus, it doesn't hurt that oil prices have come down dramatically since September, and fuel is one of the biggest costs. You got my bus by to buy Norwegian Cruise right here. Bottom line, nobody ever made a dime panicking. You know that. If you bought any of these stocks when people were fleeing from the market in late December, you would have made a killing. And many still have a lot more room to run. Remember that the next time the averages go into a tailspin. We're going to start with Chuck in California. Chuck! Yeah, Hey, Jim. What's up? Hey, not much. How are you? All right. Doing well. Hey, listen, um, I'm sure you're aware of what's going on here. It seems that uh, some in the Democratic Party want universal Medicare. Right. Which some say may put the premier insurers out of business, if that's even possible. So I hold United Healthcare as a core stock. It's been sinking steadily since the story broke, though it was up, up a little bit today. I was curious about your thoughts on UNH and also the sector in general. Okay, I've got a short and long term view on it. The short term is, is that the pain isn't over because there's too many people who genuinely believe, genuinely believe that the Democrats are going to prevail, which you and I both know is fanciful. That's not going to happen. So in the intermediate term, the stock is going to go higher. So you have to deal with the fact that if you buy the stock now and it's an incredibly volatile stock and, you know, we think management's great. You could see 235, 236, but I want you to buy it. And that's what I'm telling people who, uh, who follow me at ActionAlertsPlus.com. Going, Channel Trust buys it. We've been waiting for this decline. We will. Bye, bye, bye! Very shortly. Sydney and Marilyn. Sydney! Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good, Sydney. How about you? I'm great. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my business teacher, Mr. Mark. Ann asked about Twitter stock. I know it's been on the decline lately, but with the upcoming presidential election, I'm wondering if you think I should buy short or just right. stay
1: away from the stock.
2: Twitter, Twitter, it just it doesn't correlate with these elections. I used to think it did. It doesn't. But I have tremendous faith in Jack Dorsey and Ned Siegel as the CFO. And I would put this one away. I know a lot of people feel like the, the thing scrolls too fast and the advertisers don't like it. I think that is incorrect. I think the advertisers want to have more than just Suggest uh, Facebook in their arsenal on Google. All right, Mr. Moore, I want you to bring your class here, okay? That would really be... Nobody ever made a dime panicking, people. If you bought any of these stocks, well, you would have made a killing. They were there to be had and to be have right now. Okay, crude chaos has put the entire oil pitch in a world of patch and a world of hurt. It's really bad. But could the pipelines be the key to maybe easing the blow here? Then Gap and Old Navy are splitting it to seams. I'll tell you why the breakup could be a positive, and it's not phony. All your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
3: Monday, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post Nine at the NYSE.
2: You know what you got to get ready for? Dash. Yes, mad dad. Are going to show that you're wearing a, a sport coat on Friday rather than a suit? Sure. Okay, good.
0: Happy to show. I'd that. like I to change. I'd, my I'd legs like to get less got a high nice now. gray
2: slacks
3: on. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
2: Did you know that the United States is now the world's largest oil producer? You may not have noticed because things got a little crazy in the fourth quarter. But last September, the U.S. Energy Information Administration announced that America has finally surpassed Russia and Saudi Arabia to become the top dog in the oil space. At the same time, we've got all these liquefied natural gas terminals coming online, along with uh, the coast that allow our country to export our plentiful gas reserves. So with the United States practically overflowing with energy, you'd think there would be a great way to profit from it, right? Well, it's not that simple. The thing about producing massive quantities of any commodity is that it tends to push down prices, which is why crude is currently selling for $55. By the way, down a buck at 50 from just today. But if you can't really play the U.S. oil producers, what about the pipeline stocks? The pipeline stocks. They mostly don't care about the actual price of crude. What matters to them is the volume. More volume, more money. Plus, for years, we've been hearing about a shortage of pipeline capacity in the Permian Basin, the oil-rich region in West Texas that's at the heart of the current production boom. If there's not enough pipe, the few operators with the right infrastructure must be able to charge extortionate rates, right? I mean, you'd think this would be a golden opportunity, the golden age for pipeline companies. Think again. We've taken a real hard look at the Permian pipeline plays for you, and it turns out that the situation is a lot more complicated than it might seem at first glance. There are tons of pitfalls here, and after evaluating the whole group, there are only two that I am willing to endorse buying here. Just two. Why? Even though the U.S. now produces nearly 12 million barrels of oil per day, even though we're practically overflowing with natural gas to the point where producers just burn off the excess in many places called flaring, that's not the whole story. In theory, the pipeline operators have a lot going for them. Someone needs to take oil and gas from the remote areas where they're producing and bring them to the rest of the country. Pipe is the only way to efficiently transport natural gas. It's by far the cheapest way to transport oil, much less expensive than railroads or trucks. Yet as recently as last summer, we saw headline after headline about how the Permian Basin was capacity constrained because there simply wasn't enough pipe. In theory, the owners of these pipelines should be making money. In theory. What about practice? The reality is, is that owning the pipeline mass limited partnerships has been a Terrible investment. Terrible. A bunch of different reasons in, uh, that are, are for why that is. And some have performed better than others, but the group is miserable. First, most of the pipeline operators have high yields. They, they're income-oriented stocks, so when interest rates rise, they become a lot less attractive to investors. When the yield on the 10-year Treasury went over 3% last year, these stocks got obliterated. Second, just as Treasury yields started coming down, we also saw a major decline in oil prices. Crude was trading at $73 a barrel at the end of September. It plunged to 45 at the end of December. And while it's back up to 55 here, the dramatic decline from the highs, well, let's just say, meanwhile, natural it's, it, it does actually not help. Stick with me on this. Meanwhile, natural gas prices have plummeted since the start of the new year. Even though the pipeline operators are generally at toll roads, making most of their money based on volume, lower prices do tend to depress oil and gas production. See? You get more volume when oil's at 73 than when it's at 55, at least in our country. Still, there had to be something worth owning here, isn't there? Uh, well, last week, Bank of America downgraded one of our favorites, Magellan Midstream, an extremely well-run pipeline played with some Permian exposure, arguing that the company's facing difficult competition as they try to snap up the next round of growth projects. At the, at the same time, they're worried about pricing. Well, I almost did a double-take pricing? I thought we had a pipeline shortage in this country. I wanted to dig deeper about this capacity issue for the whole industry. So I reached out to Rusty Brazil, the president and CEO of of, of RBN Energy. he have got the website. You can check it. He's an old friend of the show who's had an incredible track record in the industry. He confirmed that there's a whole lot of new building going on. Here's the issue in a nutshell. As soon as somebody needs to build a new pipeline, suddenly everybody starts building a pipeline. And you end up with lots of new capacity scheduled to come online very soon. So when a company like Magellan tries to renegotiate its contracts, their customers have a lot more bargaining power. Last year, we didn't have enough pipe in the permit, But having done some digging, it looks like there's tons of new capacity coming online here just late this year, early next year. Perhaps as much as an 80% increase. That is bad news for the pipeline operators that haven't already locked in long-term contracts from their customers. Now, get this. Which of the pipeline operators with exposure to the Permian Basin could be worth owning here? All right. There are a bunch of them, and the, most, the ones that people most talk about are enterprise product partners, Kinder Morgan, MPLX, and energy transfer partners. Despite the troubles facing the overall industry, we remain a big fan of enterprise product partners. That's the one that Rusty Brazil confirmed is the true gem, despite the potential glut. Enterprise is the undisputed best of breed here, a huge operator with lots of exposure to the Permian and natural gas liquids. The company was able to establish in the region itself early last year when it brought a big pipeline out of Midland, That's uh, online in April. That's part of where the Permian is. But also some exciting growth projects in the pipeline that will begin in the pipeline that will begin contributing, contributing to the company's results this year and next. And you get 6.3 percent yield. Kinder Morgan is another enormous pipeline company and already a leader in the natural gas space. They have two big gas pipelines coming on this year and next. Now, KMI isn't exactly a Permian pipeline because it has some exposure to other regions, like the Rockies, which are, by the way, getting hotter, and Arkansas. But we remain a believer now in Kinder Morgan for a couple of reasons. Perhaps the most important one is it certainly doesn't hurt that founder and chairman Rich Kinder has been buying his company stock hand over fist. This is amazing. Listen to this. Just since late January, he's purchased more than $50 million worth of shares in Kinder Morgan, mostly in the $17 to $19 range, and it's still around there. The other in the basin, they're all high-yielding but I'm reluctant to recommend them. I'm reluctant to recommend them because of this overcapacity. Like I said, this industry is no longer any, I just don't find it investable, which is too bad because I know it was really great for a long time. The bottom line, the oil and gas renaissance here in the United States has been great for our economy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a great way for you to profit from it because of the industry's intense competition and limited pricing power in pipelines. That's why right now I think you need to pick your spots very carefully when it comes to these stocks. And the only ones I feel any good about right now, just incredible, because there's <laughs> tens of them. There's like 25. The only ones I'm recommending, Enterprise Products and Kinder Morgan, EPD and KMI. have money's back yet, you It is. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skied down for the light round. I'm going to start with Steve in New Jersey. Steve Marino.
0: Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Oh, Couldn't uh, be my better. Stock, my, stock, my stock I'm interested in is DIS Disney. Disney? All right, now.
2: In good, in candor, the stock rallied, and we trimmed a little for the Chapel Trust Action Plus.com. It's gotten too big. That's why we had to raise a little money for distribution. Otherwise, I would tell you they got a big English uh, meeting uh, coming up, but I'm not going to back away from that. But I did a little trimming, so I got to be honest. Okay, now let's go to D in Minnesota. D. Hey, this is T. Jacobson from Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. Hi, hey, Mr. Kramer. Yes. I'm a long term watcher, and I was just wondering if, with the changes they've made at Wells Fargo, if you consider it a buy? I a do. And I think Tim Slow's got it right. Now, we got to understand there are going to be some hearings coming up on the Hill. And the hearing's going to be tough. And Tim Slow's going to have to, uh, I think he does March 12th. So you got to be ready for that. But with a 3.6% yield and Warren Buffett's backing and the fact that this stock has done nothing in ages, buy, buy, buy. Okay. I want to go to Mark in Wisconsin. Mark.
3: Jim, uh, my stock is in the solar panels. Uh, TJ Rogers, late of Cypress Semiconductor, is involved in a big way. They've developed a technological package that goes right into the solar panel. Okay. Uh, name of the company is Enphase. Yeah, TJ. Uh,
2: you know what? I know TJ's not going to come on to talk about Enphase, but Enphase is the winner in this, in this segment. I remember, you know, this is a good one. I tend to, people always want first solar, but I would like to have someone from the management team come on so I don't get hurt on this. Let's go to Beverly in New Jersey. Beverly.
0: Hello, Jim. Booya. This is Beverly in A. Harbor Township. Nice. What's up? I'm 63 years old, and I just bought my first individual stock, Starbucks, as a long-term home for the kids.
2: Good idea or no good idea? Really smart. I got to tell KJ, Ah, Kevin Kevin Johnson is a winner, and he's doing a fantastic job. And I like Starbucks stock very much. And if it pulls back, you buy more. Scott in Arizona. Scott.
3: Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I'm a couple of uh, years away from a retirement. All right. And I own Marriott International Stock. Oh,
2: uh, then you're doing great because, uh, you know, look, Arnie Sorensen is just terrific. The stock just moved up 14 points. I would buy, you know, you own it, don't trade it. If it comes down, buy more. Let's go to Ben in Illinois. Ben! Big
1: windy Indy City, but ya to you, Professor Kramer. I wanted to
2: get your thoughts.
1: On a company that touches, and they also touch upon the 5G theme called Acacia
2: Communications. Oh, no, up 42 points up too much this year, and it is a wild trader, and I can't do it. I just can't do it. Yeah, don't and don't that, fight. ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Oh, no, sorry, Dad.
2: Costum. When I was eight years old, I watched your first ever episode of Mad Money back in 2005. I'm Jim Kramer, and welcome to My World. We call My World Mad Money. Mmm, Kramer! My baloney has a first name it's K R A F T. My baloney has a second name it's H E I N Z. <laughs> and they took a meat axe that dividend. Look, anything can bounce. Well, almost anything. Great. Breathe new life into an ailing retailer. Well, look at Gap stores. Think about this. They tried buybacks. They tried dividend boosts. They tried new concepts. Really, none of it worked. So last night, they finally did something big. They decided to stop wasting their time and just split up the darn company to unlock value. Gap's breaking itself up into, let's say, the slow growth Old Navy and then the no growth collection, just as an amalgam, Banana Republic, Athleta, Hill City, Intermix, and, of course, Gap itself, which is what's pulling down that amalgam. In response, the stock screamed higher. It was worth 16% in one day. I know this may seem like pure financial ledger to men. Uh, What, you just shuffle your assets around and suddenly they're worth a heck of a lot more money? But I think it's actually a really fantastic idea and the move makes a ton of sense. Frankly, it's about time. Old Navy is a nice business, 30% same-store sales growth uh, in spite of an anemic fourth quarter. Now it will finally be able to free to grow on its own. If it's laser-like focus, I think they can beat the 3%. Art Peck, the surviving CEO of the remaining business, I'm calling it NUCO for now, but it's the rump of the current Gap stores, can close this myriad underperforming Gap and Banana Republic stores and blow out the good brands. That's a godsend because the namesake brand Gap experienced 5% same-store sales shrinkage this last quarter. That's terrible. Heck, given how fabulously Athleta its Lululemon-type store is doing, 30% growth clip. I'd rename the whole chain Athleta. Yep, they really need to pare back the parts of the business that aren't working. I think that's the only way that Rump Gap stores can turn itself around. Consider the history here. Under the leadership of Mickey Drexler during the 80s and 90s, the Gap used to be the premier growth retailer in America. At the time, it was smart, even hip as my parents would have said, and its other concepts, First Banana Republic and then Old Navy, were incredible growth stories in their own right. When you adjust for stocks, splits, Gap traded for 20 cents when Drexel took over in 1983 and peaked at $52 in 2000. Wow, what a spectacular run, with the last big leap coming from the rapid expansion of Old Navy right before the turn of the century. Throughout this incredible period, Gap's share count pretty much stayed the same. I mean, why waste money on huge buybacks when you have so much great growth ahead of you? That's why I always look at the companies that are growing, not necessarily the companies that are sitting there and buying back. But then we had a recession. And the darn thing punked out. So Drexel was unceremoniously booted in 2002. I thought that was wrong. Since then, it's really been all about the buybacking. The difference is pretty stark. A dozen years ago, Gap started getting really aggressive about repurchasing its own stock. I think to the exclusion of pursuing organic growth opportunities, frankly. They shrunk the share count from $735 million in early 2008 to $381 million now, vacuuming up more than half of the shares outstanding. Uh, uh, oh, and how did that work for you, a Gap shareholder? Before today's explosive rally, you had about a five point gain since early 2008. Stock climbed from 20 to 25. I'm telling you that. This is a pathetic chart of what you do when you don't grow. Just terrible. Okay, Gap's performance is really a sobering reminder that the stock market loves growth, not value. And you can't repurchase your way to greatness. In fact, I've only seen it work once with AutoZone, (AZO). Even then, the buyback was paired with a nice growth story. In 10 years, AutoZone shrank its share count by nearly 50%, even as they increased their store count by 50% and had good, not great, but good comparable store sale growth. In response, the stock rallied from 140 to 932. In short, buybacks don't mean squat without a compelling growth story. That's why Art Peck wants to change the narrative in one fell swoop. If he can spin off Old Navy, then close the underperforming stores that remain under the Gap umbrella, I think you'd see a dramatic comeback with this stock. You know what it reminds me of? The old days when Dayton Hudson changed its name to Target, then sold off the old department stores, leaving you with a fabulous discount chain. No, I don't think Gap is going to sell off its remaining businesses, but I do think a spin-off of Old Navy looks a lot like Target back in the old days. And after the breakup, the rump of Gap stores may be able to reinvent itself. Think of it as a dish by subtraction. We've seen it work time and time again, which is why I actually think after a lot of analysts poo-pooed it, that the new gap could have a lot more upside. It's different. Right? done a lot of work on a stock called Capri. You may have known it as Michael Kors. Intrigued by it when I was in Milan and I just keep doing the background and I've got to tell you, of all these apparel plays that haven't really moved yet, I think it's going to be that one, Capri, that is one that I think may be the place to be. It's got Versace, it's got Jimmy Choo, and it's got Michael Kors, and I think all of those, with the exception of the watch division, are on fire. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you Monday.